Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on and is a resource for people, people, friends, communities, communities activists, activists who have decided, decided to stand up, up resist, 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 fight back, mobilize. I discovered Scott Heckinger's work through an op-ed he wrote for The Nation. The piece was about the many ways in which the news media typically fails in its coverage of criminal justice and policing, through writing stories that sensationalize crime, lack context, and take police and prosecutor talking points, what he calls copaganda, at face value. Scott is the founder and executive director of Zealous, an initiative that partners with local organizations and artists to create media campaigns on criminal justice issues. Zealous employs tools like film, audio, poetry, and visual art with the goal of both altering policy and building lasting coalitions between defenders and community organizers. Scott and I sat down virtually to talk about how he went from public defender to advocate and how Zealous is working to shift the narrative about what justice in this country can and should look like. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Really glad to be on. Really good to be in conversation with you. Thanks for reaching out. So I saw that you got your start in criminal justice working as a public defender. Why did you decide to move away from actually representing people in court and into trying to find other ways to affect change in the criminal justice system? I found that the public defender work wasn't enough to do individual justice, let alone systemic justice. My first experience was down in New Orleans. It was during law school. I was in, I think, the second intern class of a newly formed public defender office. One of the only silver linings of Katrina was that a lot of justice attention got focused there. And so extraordinary defenders from around the country went down to New Orleans and started this office. And people who were just arrested were walked into this massive loading dock of the Orleans Parish Prison. My job was to find out as many details as I could in the 15 or so minutes before mass arraignments would begin, and then literally run these short, more complicated narratives over to the one public defender sitting in the magistrate judge's courtroom, where you'd look at folks through a video feed, you know, it's just a sea of orange jumpsuits and indiscernible black faces who were arraigned en masse. So when I started at Brooklyn Defender Services, this extraordinary office with 50 social workers, investigators, resources, relatively low caseloads, an actual courtroom where people could be seen before a judge, I thought I had a chance to do that kind of individual justice. And that optimism kind of came toppling down right away when I saw that the laws and practices that were developed over half a century, from pretrial detention to mandatory minimum sentences to the criminalization of everything, rendered my job as a public defender kind of impossible to carry out. And so started thinking about why public defenders weren't speaking out more, thinking about this kind of balance between both practice and policy and how the two could could work in tandem. Huh. So how did you get started with Zealous and what were some of the first projects that you did? Well, Zealous really started from that frustration, that feeling of limitations in court, limitations in terms of the audience 
we uh, were limited to just judges and prosecutors who are already predisposed to cruelty. We were limited in terms of the ways that we could tell stories, in terms of just oral advocacy or written advocacy. We were limited in terms of who the messenger could be. It was only us, privileged lawyers, speaking out in court while the people we represented were silenced. And so it started with developing this practice with other defenders in my office, with our executive director, Lisa Schreibersdorf, with our policy team, an expanded vision of what public defense can and should mean. Kind of advocacy-oriented, coalition and movement-involved defense, whether it was proactively pitching uh, systemic issues that no journalists were writing about and getting those stories written to partnering with the people we represented, not just extracting their stories for advocacy, but working collaboratively with them. We worked with community organizations in a way that defenders really hadn't before, instead of doing what we love to do as lawyers traditionally, kind of get out there and lead and talk, yeah. actually follow and listen. Uh, we worked with traditional media. We used film. We leveraged new media advocacy strategies. And so we were developing this over the course of about a decade. And then after a couple of kind of more high profile wins with bail reform in New York and discovery reform, we started getting calls from defenders around the country. We got a nice little seed grant to actually fly 55 defenders in from 42 different offices in, in 27 different states for a immersive convening to teach these skills that we didn't learn in law school and have them taught by people with direct experience, organizers, journalists, professional storytellers. Wow. And it was this galvanizing summit that made it very clear that there was hunger for this kind of work, not just from defenders, but from potential allies as well. And then COVID hits. And practice not only changes, but also the already life and death nature of defense turned into folks were far more likely to get COVID and die in jails and prisons. And hearing that demand for more of this brand of advocacy had me realize that this was a full-time gig. Yeah. Some of the projects I saw that you did online, the new media stuff, I looked at Silenced, which is about solitary in Michigan, Shedding Light, Need to Talk which is about defunding the police. So I'm curious about why you went to new media and how you feel that's working for you. So the range of projects that we do, the new media advocacy pieces, they serve this kind of longer term goal of bringing folks together, strengthening coalition and what we're calling collaborative advocacy hubs for long term change. But there's power, obviously, in the projects themselves, yeah. because it turns out, and you know this, there is a lot of injustice out there and there's a lot of information and people are inundated. How do you, A, break through and get people to pay attention to any particular justice issue, let alone one that's hyper local, usually sounds arcane, like this project we did in Oregon, for example, non-unanimous juries. That's not exciting. So how do you get people to listen? How do you get them to engage? How do you get them not to turn away? So thinking through new strategies and storytelling ways to meet a range of people and with a range of options for how they might want to engage is a, a remarkable challenge, but also opportunity. So Silence is this growing digital archive of firsthand accounts from people who are in solitary confinement in Michigan. So we had to first work closely with folks who had relationships to trust with people on the inside just to get the letters to begin with, the content. But then it was like, how do we get people to read these letters? Well, people that want to see new artwork. Maybe that's a way. So we connected with poets. If you're into poetry, we had visual artists, we had performance artists uh, interpret the letters. If people wanted to actually read them, we created this interactive storytelling experience online. 
if journalists who we really wanted to attract wanted to get a better sense of patterns, we coded them and filtered the letters for a range of types of mental health issues or conditions that they could dig into. Um, I could keep going, but basically it was like thinking about the range of ways that different audiences might interact with that cause is emblematic of, of the work that we try to do. Mm -hmm. The defund conversation, you know, with the project that we did, we followed the lead of our local partners and what they wanted to do was they thought it would be effective to show how much New York City taxpayers spend for certain aspects of the $11 billion NYPD budget and thinking positively what it instead could be used for. Yeah. And so for the same amount that New York City taxpayers have paid to settle police misconduct claims and civil rights violations, that same amount of money could go toward housing the 14,000 homeless families in New York City. Uh, the same amount of money that we spend on policing schools could actually pay for full four years tuition for 4,000 um, students in New York and so on. But defund, the word itself has become this flashpoint. The focus group, the word, and they talk about, there's folks that it turns off. Well, it should turn people off. Yeah. We shouldn't be like hiding behind capital R reform. The reality is police do not produce public health or safety. They're extremely violent and they take resources that could go to things that actually do produce those results. They're also spectacularly bad at solving or preventing crime. You know, people were saying we shouldn't say the word abolition back during slavery, but they said it and abolition happened. So I think people need to focus on the outcome and not on the on the words as much. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. I think it's great that you focused on the funding part of defund and really made it concrete to point at why you use this term and also why it's the right policy. I also love the New York Times piece on violence at police protests, which I didn't know when I read it, that Zealous was somehow involved in that too. Yeah. So New York Times, the interactive team was in the process of investigating over 100 videos during the June protests following George Floyd in New York City, but more so the violent police crackdown. They reached out to me and they asked if I knew of any police sources who could view these videos and provide their take on whether they violate the patrol guide. And my initial reaction was like, no. <laughs> it turns out like I, I do actually have a few folks who are either current or former police who I think are on the right side of things. But what I said back to them was like, I'll do you one better. Why don't I pull together a team of public defenders who not only can tell you whether or not they violate the patrol guide because defenders happen to be experts on the patrol guide because we cross-examine police officers on them all the time, but also analyze the videos for two other things, civil rights violations and imagining a world where what we're looking at on video was perpetrated not by police, but by civilians. What would a prosecutor charge them with? And I said, okay, let's do that. So I organized brilliant colleagues uh, from Legal Aid Society, Bronx Defenders, Civil Rights Attorneys, and Brooklyn Defender Services, and spent like a couple of weeks analyzing these videos and provided this information to the New York Times. And what was interesting and what I talked to defenders a lot about is that we weren't mentioned yeah. in the reporting at all, even though we were willing to, and we did you know, go on record, we weren't quoted. And that's fine. Some of the best justice journalism comes out of defenders and other non-police prosecutor sources, educating journalists, talking on background, providing shaping and framing for stories. And so I was really proud with the outcome because it was a super powerful piece of journalism that would have been completely different. Yeah. Off of that, 
Talk to me about the piece you wrote for The Nation about how the New York Times and NPR uh, fail in their coverage of policing. So as a background, at some point in the last couple of months, the FBI came out with data. And the data showed that homicide rates had increased at a rate higher than in past years. Still, however, homicide rate was at historic lows, nowhere near where it was in the 90s. And number two, what came out of it was that every other category of major crime, so all other violent crime, continued a 30-year dramatic drop. Both that short-term rise in homicides and also that long-term decline in all the crimes happened universally. It happened in big cities and small towns. It happened in red states and blue states. It happened in places that were trying out modest uh, bail reform in places that were still as carceral as they could be, and other places that had protests following George Floyd and places that hadn't. The most newsworthy thing to me was that the universality of the data undermined a year's worth of police and prosecutor talking points blaming protests and police morale being low and reform for any kind of increase in crime. It literally showed that it was the same all over the place, so clearly it couldn't be that. This is what the New York Times, the NPR, and basically every other source reported. Homicides are at an all-time high, and police and prosecutors speculate that it's because of bail reform and protests over police violence and police morale being low. That was what you were to take away. It was a sensationalized headline. It was sourcing only from police and prosecutors. It was allowing them to speculate on short-run statistics, which are notoriously volatile and especially dangerous in the criminal justice context because they shape public opinion so much. And no nuance. And so I, I took offense and I took to Twitter, as I sometimes do, and kind of critiqued it. And then translated this Twitter thread into an op-ed, a commentary that really wasn't intended to slam the reporters, but more an opportunity to identify the bad practices that really map onto all of criminal justice journalism and offer a kind of roadmap for a way out of these bad practices. The reason why we've gotten to where we are with mass incarceration over the last 50 years is really in large part because of media, mostly well-intentioned journalists and definitely some not well-intentioned journalists, really kind of running with police, prosecutor, prison, and kind of lawmaker talking points about crime and punishment punishment, which has influenced the general public's understanding and basic intuitions about it, which then allows politicians to pass laws that literally go against everyone's interest or costly, continue to fail to produce the outcomes that they claim they're intended to produce, public health and safety. And right now, the same tactics by these, these forces that are invested literally and figuratively in the criminal punishment system, and because they're feeling threatened, they're falling back on the same propaganda. And media is just falling for it again which is allowing the public to continue to be duped, which is leading to the perpetuation of insanity, uh, for lack of a better word. And so I really view better journalism as a racial and social justice imperative. And so I hope that some journalists listened. I'll, I'll say the New York Times like came out with a report yesterday about the homicide increase again, which on its face, like, why, why do you need to do that? But what they did differently was they included throughout and especially higher up disclaimer after disclaimer about the fact that 
there is no way to know the causes of the increase in homicides. They underscored the fact that it, the homicide rate was still at historic lows. It talked about the decline in other crimes. It didn't once mention bail reform or George Floyd protests. It centered on discrete cases of survivors of violence or family members of people who were killed and really underscored that violence is all around the corner, but so much of it is interpersonal. So there was just more nuance. There was a difference in sourcing. There's more context. And I'd like to think that it has something to do with the change in conversation around this, but it was good to see. And I, quote unquote, took Twitter to at least praise some of the changes. Right. So I was going to ask if you've seen any concrete impact from your work or if you have any things that, that give you hope that this is creating some change. So first of all, if any organization like measures success based upon a law or policy being changed, uh, we're setting ourselves up for failure because we're in such a long fight. The status quo is so entrenched. Sure. That said, in the last 15 months, we haven't seen successes. Our partners have, in part because of the support we've been able to provide. So, for example, in Chicago, we supported uh, the Coalition to End Money Bond with a storytelling project called 132 Calls, which centered the story of Sandra Greer Lee, who lost her husband in Cook County Jail. She literally counted up the number of times she called for help after she learned about the conditions inside around COVID. And we worked with local artists to create uh, illustrations to animate her story. Uh, and that was one of the things of many that helped get the Pretrial Fairness Act passed in in Chicago, which is one of the most sweeping changes for pretrial justice in the country, including ending cash bail. We supported kind of a last ditch effort in Maryland by pulling together a video with a range of influential people talking about the need to end juvenile life without parole. And according to local advocates, not only push the legislature to vote for it, but to then override a gubernatorial veto. In Prince George's County, Maryland, we worked with local uh, defenders and grassroots organizers this organization led by formerly incarcerated women called Life After Release and people incarcerated to share the experience of those who were caged pretrial at the earlier stages of COVID. They couldn't record phone calls. They couldn't get letters out. But what they had were these sworn declarations that came from phone calls and were written down by their advocates. And we worked with Broadway Advocacy Coalition to have a range of actors and singers, folks like Fiona Apple, Jesse Williams, and also advocates and Black law school deans to read in selfie videos these words out loud. And within a week, we had $25,000 for the local bail fund to bail folks out, over 30,000 petition signatures, a range of press putting the state's attorney, Aisha Brave Boy, on the defensive. But perhaps the most amazing thing that came out of it was Carmen Johnson, who co-led Life After Release, sitting in court by herself and then virtually writing accountability letters within seven days to turn from one into over 200 court watchers. It's now the largest court watch program in the country, and we're working with them on an effort to expand virtual court watch and hold actors accountable. Last but not least, through the creation of that project, it was called Gasping for Justice. The defenders and local organizers, they are full-on coalition partners coming up with extraordinary ideas. And so that's what it's all about. It's seeing not only narrative shifting, but this local collaborative advocacy hub really develop and do so much without us needing to be there. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm going to ask you, what can the public do to work on these kind of criminal justice reform issues? Yeah, you can volunteer to Court Watch. Go to courtwatchpg.org or 
Google court watch and your city to see if there's a court watch program in your area. Even if it's once a month, just sit in in court, get trained on the language of court and hold actors accountable. The other thing, frankly, is to be more kind of skeptical, informed consumers of news. Recognize that the current state of journalism, that what you read about crime and punishment is often based on lies and not true. And I'm not saying everything is fake media, but look out for signals, biases in terms of sourcing, biases in terms of the kinds of cases that reporters are writing about and pay attention to the language that's being used. Are they saying people or are they using words like felon and inmate and in the case of New York Post, their favorite word, jailbirds. So just be more conscious consumers of not just news and media, but popular culture. What you see in Law and & Order and in other programs like that is not how the system works. And for that reason, follow on Twitter and elsewhere. Listen to Public Defenders. I'm at Scott H-E-C-H, and I do as much as I can to uplift the community of defenders doing extraordinary work around the country. Um, so anyway, listen and follow and learn.